Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. November the 20th. Today is Joe Biden's 78th birthday. Um, And so that got me thinking, not only about birthdays, but about rebirthdays. So I want to talk for a moment about your rebirthday. When is your rebirthday? Let me tell you a quick story about something I witnessed in worship um, on a Sunday in Malawi. This goes back to summer of 2009, uh, everyone whose rebirthday falls in the week um, ahead. So like they're anticipating it. They already, they, they have been reborn. And so they know the date of their rebirthday. And anybody whose rebirthday follows in the week ahead comes forward and is celebrated in the context of the worship service. This is the time when the brothers and sisters in Christ, when the family of faith celebrate the rebirth day of these individuals. And so just think about that for a moment um, and think about how much we invest in celebrating birthdays and how little we invest in celebrating rebirth days. Uh, in, in Malawi, they don't really celebrate birthdays, which are often not even recorded because they don't all expect their babies to live very long. Um, they celebrate rebirth days with great enthusiasm. They celebrate the adoption of every believer into the family of God, the time when that person made their profession of faith, acknowledged that they are dead to sin and alive again in Jesus Christ. It is often, um, they often celebrate it not on like maybe the day they prayed that prayer, but the day that they were baptized, because that is something that is chronicled. That is a certificate that they have. Most people in Malawi don't have a birth certificate. They do have a certificate of baptism. They sing, they rejoice, they pray, and they pray that today would be the rebirth day for someone else, that others would come to be reborn into the living hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Now, where do they get that? And why don't we do that? Well, where they get it uh, is John chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 1. And so in John chapter 3, I won't read the full text, but encourage you to do so. Uh, Where in the word are you today? Let me invite you to be in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, came uh, came under the cover of darkness to ask Jesus, whom he acknowledged is a teacher who had come from God, um, and acknowledged that the only way that Jesus could be doing the things that he was doing is if God was with him. And Jesus answered him. Now, Nicodemus never said, you know, like, what do I have to do to be saved? Um, Jesus instead just inserts into this conversation, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And it, and they get into this conversation about what it means to be born again. Again, I encourage you to read those verses at the opening of John chapter 3. And it 
you know, read all the way through verse 16, you know, like, right, you know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know that verse. Do you know the 15 prior to it? That's what I'm encouraging you to do today. Find out what Jesus has actually said about being reborn. Consider your rebirth day and celebrate it and see if you might be able to live your faith out in such a way today that someone else, someone else would go from death to life today, that this might be someone else's rebirth day. All right. uh, Waiting in the wings right now, Matthew Hawkins, he and I are going to take up the topic of religious freedom and the arguments that are taking shape over executive orders expected Well, probably right away by a Biden administration. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Matthew Hawkins. You can find him on Twitter at MTHawk and online at MatthewTHawkins.com. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Carmen, for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, religious freedom, religious liberty are conversations that we, we, you and I take up very frequently, encourage listeners to um, consider as well. We've been sort of following the um, religious freedom and religious liberty storylines as the Secretary of State makes this international tour. We've also been following headlines related to, let's say, the human rights um, uh, campaign sending a blueprint for LGBTQ equality um, to the what they anticipate to be the incoming Biden administration. And so I thought it would be helpful for you to talk with us today um, about executive orders and what you think we can expect to see um, from a Biden administration in terms of executive orders, specifically in relationship to religious freedom. Yeah. Well, yes. So let's go down the little uh, the little policy rabbit hole called executive orders. <laughs> um, for context, um, uh, we recognize that the Senate and the Congress, they create legislation. We'll go back to the basics here. Congress creates legislation. And ideally, the president signs stuff and then uh, it has bears the responsibility in the executive branch to enforce or deliver or distribute uh, the policies that Congress has come up with. And then the judicial branch weighs whether or not uh, certain policies are in keeping with um, with the Constitution. That's ideally the way it should work. But as we have discussed in the past, um, we're in an era now where Congress uh, really outsources a lot of decision making to the executive branch and the judicial branch, which uh, does a number of things, not the least of which is make uh, presidential elections really uh, all the more contentious and more uh, polarized because we recognize the ramifications that most policy nowadays of um, any significance is really done uh, through these executive orders by a president or um, made uh, made decisions by the judicial branch. Um, so this is the context of executive orders. Well, what can what can an executive order do? Um, well, it's it's a way for a president to president to act unilaterally to employ some uh, policies that they want to do that they can't get through Congress. 
Every president has done this. Um, some presidents in different scales have uh, used it more often. Um, most legis- most executive orders, um, you know, don't really make headlines all the time. But again, we're kind of in this hyperpolarized moment here where presidents uh, are inclined, um, in, you know, to act more swiftly um, in their own context. Um, for the sake of you know national policy on certain things, executive orders typically are pretty limited, um, but it doesn't mean they're inconsequential. So what we have here is a conflict between religious freedom um, and LGBTQ rights um, that has been going on for several years now. Um, executive orders in this situation um, started when President Obama uh, from a, this is from an NPR report, or, or an NPR report uh, in 2014. Uh, Obama issued an executive order prohibiting federal contractors from discriminating and hiring practices on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. S-O-G-I, SOGI for short. Okay, so this has to do with federal contractors. If you're going to engage in business with the federal government, either as a non-governmental organization um, or um, or a business, um, whether you're providing, um, you know, making roads for the federal government or if you are um, providing coffee for federal workers, um, what is required of federal contractors when you do business with the federal government? That's what is at the crux of this. So the administration or the Trump administration later um, walked that order back um, and made sure that contractors who have uh, religious um, convictions about human sexuality, that they have a discrimination claim. Um, or I'm sorry, they have a religious exemption um, under that order. Okay, so you have one administration doing one thing, another administration uh, doing another, and as you indicated, uh, we expect the Biden administration to do something different um, than the Trump administration, perhaps uh, weaken um, the religious exemptions. We will see um, what how this works is that a president issues an executive order and then all the federal agencies then have to figure out how they have to incorporate that. Um, and some executive orders are more um, uniform than others as far as how they roll out. Um, and uh, others are kind of more varied. Uh, so that's the basic landscape. And that's what we're watching um, from the White House uh, as this transition unfolds. I think it's a helpful reminder that you know, all of the agencies of the federal government um, that are a part of the cabinet, those are overseen really by the executive branch. And so if you think of the Department of Education, you could be looking for um, the election of President Biden to have an effect on how public schools are, um, what what the administration might uh, send them in terms of guidance and counsel. Um, so yeah. the same would be true in any other area. So we're talking here about uh, federal contractors, and we expect an executive order reversing the Trump executive order of 2017, which reversed the – or er, actually, uh, it just right. amended the Obama um, executive order of 2014. The other one people are going to hear about is going to be the Mexico City um, – Right. Uh, right? They, like, that's the one that has been ping-ponging back and forth when when the White House switches hands – um, is this conversation about whether or not U.S. federal tax dollars will be used to fund abortions overseas. And so that would be right. another one that people would want to sort of watch for. Um, all right. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you and I have to take a very brief break. Otherwise, Paul's going to just cut us off. So we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation with Matthew Hawkins. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Matt Hawkins. One of the things that Matt does is he has... Um, a Crossing Faiths podcast. Love for you to share with people um, that what you're doing on the Crossing Faiths podcast. And then talk about um, this article that we both read in Christianity Today about evangelicals and Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. So the basic gist of the Crossing Faiths podcast is that I, as a Christian, co-host it with my friend John Pinna, who is a Muslim, and uh, we talk about religion and politics because we thought uh, Christian and a Muslim, particularly in this day and age, uh, having a long-term conversation um, about religion and politics that otherwise uh, we assume uh, can't be talked about by friends uh, who... (laughs) Is disagreement. Uh, we thought that was a unique, a unique shtick. So we're available on YouTube and anywhere you get podcasts. Um, we have a lot of fun with it. We have guests of different, uh, varying uh, religious backgrounds, and uh, so we we like to mix it up. And uh, basically, that it's not that anyone thought, hey, this is a good idea. It's that John and I uh, go back uh, working together in the public policy space as, as advocates. Um, I as a Baptist and he as a Muslim uh, for many years, and so our the podcast is basically us dragging our uh, conversations into public. Um, um, and that's the basic gist of that. Uh, so there's this article in Christianity Today that uh, is titled Evangelicals and Muslims, Not Brothers, But Best Friends. And so um, it's um, uh, talking about uh, a group called the World Evangelical Alliance uh, collaborating with a Muslim group um, with, in an effort to combat religious extremism. And uh, it's working with a pretty pretty interesting group Um and folks can go to Christianity Today and find that. Um, and I like um, how – I'm going to lose the paragraph because uh, of what I just was going to highlight. Okay. Uh, okay, there it is. Towards the end, um, uh, this is a, a kind of an opinion piece by one of the participants. Quote, first, it is our interest as reconcilers for Christ to promote and encourage all peacemakers. Our theology of common grace calls us to support anyone who th- seeks an end to religious violence. Um, and, uh, unquote. And um, I certainly resonate with that message. And uh, I, I want to encourage Christians who um, – when we're thinking about Muslims um, or we're thinking about uh, any kind of nation, you know, nation where uh, or context where religious extremism um, is a problem, um, you know, I want to I want to ask people what they think really helps. Um, n- number number one, I also want to ask people to uh, try to use use our imagination to come up with some empathy um, for Muslims. Uh, we as Christians, uh, in America, we often hear our own faith, uh, described and attacked, um, and, uh, spoken with, with a presumed authority by people who disagree with us, uh, often, uh, secularist atheists, uh, who try to besmirch our faith and, uh, tell people what our faith is really about. We of course wouldn't, uh, stand for that or wouldn't accept that as the only 
or best uh, way to learn about Christianity, right, from those who attack it or, or disbelieve it. Um, and so uh, I'd encourage people to think about where they've learned about Islam um, from and, uh, and and curious. And, you know, if you really want to be interested, you know, talk to a Muslim about what their faith, uh, what, how they would express their faith. Um, and also, uh, if you want to bring about change, um, in any given situation, uh, particularly in a situated context, uh, a particular context, we got to ask what, what really does help? Uh, um, does it, does it mean picking out just the right Muslim to collaborate with? Um, you know, is it, is it only the Muslim that you, you, you feel comfortable with? Right. Um, I think, I think uh, all of us, when we reflect on it a bit, realize, oh, you, you, you know, it's not just one Muslim or even one Muslim sect that really is going to change the whole Muslim world. Right. Um, we could see this if you, if people wanted to influence American Christianity, um, you're, you're not going to pick out someone like a Westboro Baptist or a, uh, or a prosperity gospel person as representative of American Christianity. Right. Um, and we have a diversity of expressions of the Christian faith, even in America, much less outside the States. And so if you really want, uh, to influence American Christianity broadly, you need to work with a cross section of Christians, right? So it means, uh, Catholics, it means a cross section of Protestant, uh, kind of mainline Protestant folks. It means a smattering of evangelicals and even non-denominational megachurch pastors, right? That, that would be the strategy that you would come up with, um, broadly speaking. And so, um, if folks are interested particularly people in the West who are interested in influencing and helping uh, Muslims really, um, reduce religious extremism, um, you got to figure out what really works in the long term. Um, and uh, I, I like the phrase that my friend Tim Gagline at, at Focus on the Family uses. He, it's, there's a ministry of presence, um, and people got to know you. People got to, if you run an institution, people got to know and trust your institution. That includes local churches being known at some level by relevant policymakers and other community leaders. Um, that often begins locally. Um, just yesterday I was on a, a conference or a zoom call where, uh, our local hospital was engaging again, a cross section of Christian pastors, an ecumenical collaboration of pastors, um, asking for their help in, uh, encouraging the community to abide by COVID-19 restrictions like wearing masks and social distancing and that kind of thing. Uh, it's a really smart move by, by the local hospital. Um, the, the similar, similar, um, work needs to be done when you're trying to influence, um, places, um, like Muslim majority countries where religious extremism is a problem. Um, people got to know the institutions, people, there's got to be trust that needs to be built between people and institutions. And you got to have a cross section, of people and institutions to really um, manage um, manage some change, and then you got to ask where you want to go. What do you, what do we want to mm -hmm. accomplish? What's the vision, right? Um, we don't arrive at our destination by doing things that take us in an opposite direction, right? Or that hinder our travel. And when you're talking about um, reconciliation or resolving conflict or presenting conflict, there there are things that can be done that help, and then there are other things that can be done that can be really detrimental. And so we got to let the vision drive our tactics um, in any kind of conflict, whether it's terrorism and war or a local zoning dispute or debate within a local church, where we want to go defines how we ought to get and go about getting stuff done. And you can't do it alone. And so um, the World Evangelical Alliance 
uh, collaborating with some uh, Muslim friends um, is a pretty smart way to go. Um, and I hope I hope their project uh, gets some more energy behind it. Um, I encourage folks to think about think about this uh, in terms of friendship. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, this, these are uh, folks who realize that uh, Muslims are our neighbors um, and uh, we have an obligation uh, at some level uh, to be their neighbors. It doesn't mean we're mixing up our religions and trying to believe the same things <laughs> or uh, or right. even minimize those differences. Um, right. But they are human beings. They bear the image of God. Um, and so I'm pretty excited to see any any kind of effort like this. Yeah. When you ask what really helps, my number one um, answer to the question was befriending someone from a Muslim mm -hmm. background. Like that's number mm -hmm. one. And so let me just yeah. um, encourage listeners, you know, just just think about like, how do you make a friend? When was the last time you actually made a friend? Um, how might you intentionally make uh, make a friend uh, in the coming weeks or months? Or maybe it could be your goal for 2021. Um, and you can start by just simply identifying what do I have in common with this other individual? Do our kids go to the same school? Do we walk in the same park? Do we shop at the same grocery store? Do we visit the same yeah. coffee shop? And if your answer to all of those questions is no, no, there are no people who are recognizably Muslim or from a Muslim background who live in my neighborhood, go to my school, sh walk in my park, shop at my grocery store or visit the, the coffee shop where I drink my coffee, then you have to intentionally start walking, shopping, eating and grabbing coffee in another part of town. Because there are mm -hmm. Muslims who live in your town, in your city. Um, and so, you know, start by befriending someone, befriending someone, and then broaden that conversation. And eventually you're going to get to identifying the issue that we have raised here, which is religious extremism. And I think it's important to point out from the viewpoint of a Muslim, religious extremism may not be on their side of the religious aisle. It may right. well be that they have experienced religious discrimination in a, you know, in a dominant Christian culture by people who have behaved toward them in ways that are not Christian. So yeah. I just think that, you know, as we wade into this, we got to take some personal responsibility. This is not going to happen by some sort of government fiat, and it's certainly not going to happen <laughs> through, you know, through war, open warfare. So yeah. um, just, just really want to encourage people on this front today. All right, Matt, we're completely out of time. Thank you so much, my brother. Thanks, Happy Carmen. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. All right, friends, we'll be right back. All right, I got to make one quick comment on the way we are cultivating the appetites of our grandchildren. It's one thing to uh, get them all to raise their hands and enthusiastically uh, want to get a scoop of ice cream or a new toy. What would happen if we said, hey, does everybody want to go to church? Would they enthusiastically shoot their hands up into the air in the same way? Who wants to open the Bible? Who wants to read the Bible with me? Who wants to explore God's love? Um, and so we want to be cultivating appetites in our children and grandchildren that are um, for the things of the faith, in addition to for the things of the world. That's no criticism of what Greg Laurie is sharing there. That's just a, a, a reminder that you are cultivating the appetites of others today in the things that you offer and the things that you make attractive and the things that you supply for them. So just a thought. Okay, um, Alan Crippen is up next. He's the chief of exhibits, programs, and public engagement for the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. It's opening in Philadelphia. Um, and I wanted to talk about this because... What they're highlighting is the reality that the Bible is actually the primary founding document of the United States of America. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says, The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. 
Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. C.S. Lewis in his eloquent way is saying this, you have the present moment to do your responsibilities to handle what's been given to you and to experience the grace of God. You can't live in the future. You can't live in the past. You have right now. When it comes to raising teens, you may wish you were at a different point in life, that the kids were past this stage. But in reality, today is exactly what God has given you. What are you going to do with today? Mom and dad live in the moment. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org. That's ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Joining me now, Alan Crippen. He is the Chief of Exhibits, Programs, and Public Engagement for the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, opening soon in Philadelphia. Alan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's a delight to be with you this morning. So I would like to start um, with this question. When, when you hear people refer to the founding documents of the United States of America, what's a founding document that most people leave off the list? <laughs> this is a great question. Uh, obviously, you know, most people think of uh, the Declaration of Independence, maybe first, uh, the Constitution of the United States. Um, if they're really sophisticated, they might mention the Articles of Confederation, which uh, functioned as our Constitution before the Constitution of 1787. And also think about various colonial charters and constitutions, etc. But um, the common omission is the Bible itself. You know, John Adams has this, uh, you know, very interesting uh, statement uh, where he says that the Constitution, and he's referring to the 1787 Constitution, was made for a moral and religious people, and that it's wholly inadequate for the government of any other. So, you know, he's generally talking about um, morals and religion, uh, morals and religious people, uh, obviously, at the time, he's referring to Christianity. Uh, one could argue, you know, Christianity and its and its Jewish roots, the Jewish Jewish religion, that this is um, essentially a, a moral, ethical, cultural foundation for the well-working of the Constitution of the United States. And so, our uh, argument is that uh, you know the, the the book, right? We used to call it the Good Book, the book that communicates the content of, of, of those two faith traditions, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, is the Bible. The Bible historically has been a culturally formative of American manners and mores and values and, and public virtues, etc. And so in some ways, it's appropriate to think about the Bible not only as a sacred book, you know, with a sacred history and a story of redemption, but but also as a civilizational text, as a text that has been incredibly formative of American ideals and institutions, as well as, you know, various institutions in the world. So when we talk about ideals and we talk about institutions, I would say that I'm going to observe that there are competing visions of liberty in terms of an ideal, and we are seeing 
institutions in the United States of America being fundamentally undermined today. And part of that is one vision of liberty being advanced against another. Can you speak into that? Certainly. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, this is the point of the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center to really help Americans uh, understand our you know, civilizational conception of liberty. Liberty can be a very unstable thing. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people uh, today think of, of liberty as, um, as an intrinsic good, right? It, it's all about liberty, the liberty to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Now that's not an ideal of the founders. That might be John Stuart Mill, a famous um, 19th century libertarian philosopher. But that's not the kind of liberty that the founders, by and large, were, were talking about. Liberty, in their view, was not an intrinsic good. It was an instrumental good. There was, liberty was for a purpose, right? It was, um, uh, it was a context for achieving a, a good and, and just society. Liberty, I think it's also important to remember that at the time of the American Revolution, and shortly thereafter, there was another revolution about liberty happening in the world, and that was the French Revolution. Both of these revolutions, the American and the French, were predicated upon liberty, but both advocated different conceptions of liberty, so that the American Revolution ended up with a rather stable order. I mean, granted, there are, um, there are problems at the founding, and there, there are social issues and injustices that uh, were not completely dealt with at the founding. I, I think of you know slavery and women's rights and these other issues that are important and that um, were and are uh, later being dealt with. But we think of the French Revolution. That revolution, based on liberty, equality, and fraternity, ended up as a complete bloodbath. Uh, you know, we know these horrific stories of the guillotine, and your listeners have, I'm sure, read a tale of two cities and. <laughs> And Les Mis, and you know, this is this is the context for the French Revolution. It went on for decades. It ended up in a world war. Uh, it left seven million people dead. Uh, even skirmishes of that world war were fought fought here. The War of eighteen twelve, which is sort of a side action of a world war two of a of a world war, the French Revolution uh, fought overseas. So liberty <laughs> it can lead to some really deadly things. And a number of scholars, I mean, I think of Oz Guinness, you know, makes a, a salient point that what's perhaps going on in America today is this sort of competing visions for liberty. Liberty, as the founders conceived of it, largely was, was an ordered liberty. It was a liberty toward an intrinsic good, that intrinsic good being justice. So liberty was instrumental to get us to justice. Now, Liberty, it needs, it needs guidance. It needs a, a direction. And that's, I think, where faith comes in. Faith, we would argue at the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, faith guides liberty toward justice. It's its, its moral compass. It, uh, it's the guardrails. It, um, it moves liberty in the direction of achieving a, a just society uh, for the common good. You know, that, that would be our argument. I am talking with Alan Crippen. We are talking about the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. You can check it out at faithandliberty.org, and we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I am in your presence. You're all around me. 
Returning now to my conversation with Alan Crippen. He is the chief of exhibits, programs, and public engagement for the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center in Philadelphia. You can find it at faithandliberty.org. First of all, Alan, thank you for this conversation. It's uh, it's a feast, and it's not just a feast for the mind. Like, you're giving us a conversation to really till in the soil of our hearts and our conversations with others. I mean, what guides the liberty conversation today? I'm thinking about conversations that I might have uh, over the holidays with people who are reading the same headlines that I might be reading and having a different view of what's happening on the streets of America in relationship to our our history, its founding, the holidays we celebrate, the names we call things, um, the institutions that we are either seeking to uphold in advance or tear down, the observation that faith guides liberty toward justice, that faith is the compass, is a is an important one. Maybe we could talk for a moment about the Faith and Liberty Center being a place where people are invited to wrestle with hard questions. It's not as if we don't have a complicated history, right? We do have a complicated history. People of faith use the scriptures to enslave other people in America. So talk about that in terms of what people experience at the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center in terms of the the wrestling with history. Well, certainly, Carmen, I'm, I'm happy to do that. The, the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center is a $60 million attraction coming to Philadelphia in May of 2021, God willing, you know, COVID and all of that. It's being built, uh, actually it has been built now, It's uh, the exhibits are being actually installed on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, the, the founding city of the American Republic. Um, when, you, when you walk out the front door of the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, you will see uh, to your left, the Great Independence Hall, and then a, a little bit to the right, the Liberty Bell Pavilion. And if you keep you know, spanning to the right, the, the, the National Constitution Center. So, so the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center occupies some great uh, real estate. Uh, what is its purpose? Its purpose is um, to guide the visitor on an exploration of discovery, discovery about uh, the American story and really how the Bible has influenced individuals in key historical and personal moments to advance the cause of liberty in the American story. And uh, as you've have pointed out that it's, it's been a, a, a rocky story. Uh, the Bible has been uh, appropriated and misappropriated, I think, for a lot of um, crazy things. By the way, misappropriation of the Bible is uh, it's a pretty old story. It, it dates at least back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness when the devil himself quoted scripture to solicit Jesus to do acts of disobedience to God. So, you know, so the misuse of scripture is is a very old thing. Uh, but what what we want to do, and and what we do in a very uh, savvy and technologically sophisticated way, is to provide an immersive, engaging experience uh, through media, through engagement with uh, really interesting artifacts, to explore this uh, role this formative, culturally formative role of the Bible as it has, um, as it, as it has shaped the American story. I also want to um, just give you an opportunity to, to speak into the cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now. 
Um, so how how does an average person, you know, out here in uh, in America, how do we engage in the cultural conversation that's going on today about liberty, particularly when it's when people are expressing their autonomy in ways that is destructive to what I understand or appreciate about the founding of the nation? It's a great question. In, in some ways, um, at the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, we want to model just how to do that. So I would certainly, uh, as, as, we, as we sort of move out of this, God willing, uh, COVID <laughs> environment, encourage uh, all listeners to, to come to Philadelphia, right, to explore uh, this um, amazing city and its role in the American um, founding, but also, you know, to visit the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, because what we're trying to do is to essentially leverage history as an apologetic, as a, as a, as a defense of uh, Holy Scripture. We're trying to sort of uh, open that part of the American narrative that I think is largely neglected, right? What what is What has been the role of... Um, the Bible, the Bible is a book of at least two faith traditions, the, the Judaic tradition and the Christian tradition in shaping American ideals and institutions in fashioning um, American uh, mores and morals in um, even informing arguably our, our democratic uh, in, institutions. Uh, there is a there is a, a stream of thought called uh, political Hebraism, right? Which would which would which argues it's an interesting story. It argues that uh, Republican government, Republican form of government, can be rooted in the Old Testament Pentateuch in the in the Mosaic regime. And there's a whole lot of uh, Hebrew and later Christian thought on that. So there's there's much to sort of glean from the Bible as we uh, think about this uh, literary story. And we also think about these great social reform movements in the American story, Um, whether that be, uh, you know, with the pilgrims and other colonists coming to um, experience religious freedom in the new world. So that's an important uh, narrative. Uh, The American Revolution itself was often cast as as a freedom conflict you know, George III was pictured by the patriots as, as a as a new pharaoh, you know, holding people in bondage in Egypt, and and so uh, the Bible informed how how people understood the the American Revolution. And you fast forward, obviously, uh, as America wrestles with this hor- horrific institution of slavery, the Bible becomes a great source of inspiration for enslaved peoples. Uh, for instance, Harriet Tubman is described as the Moses of her people. It was also a great inspiration for abolitionists uh, and emancipationists uh, to to grapple with the issue. It's, it becomes the moral grammar for this great engine of reform with regard to slavery. And and you just add all the social movements, um, the mm-hmm. women's suffrage down and in, uh, in into the 20th century civil rights. Uh, the Bible has inspired great and noble men and women to uh, make America a, a more just uh, society. So I guess it's a, it's a bit of a Frank Capra, it's a wonderful life exercise to imagine or try to imagine uh, what the American Republic would be like without this sacred text, without mm-hmm. this uh, civilizational text. Uh, it would become 
um, you know, essentially Pottersville for those listeners who've watched yeah, the film, exactly. right? And it's not a very nice place. That's so exactly I think, right. you know, if, if, if we can learn how to sort of tell these stories, and, and I think that's the key, engaging our neighbors, you know, there's not going to be any change, any social change if we're, if we're you know, barricaded, <laughs> barricaded rather be, behind the, these walls of, of separation. We've, we've got to engage our neighbors with reasonable discourse. Uh, we've got to listen, you know, to, to their objections. We've got to hear them and, and, and respond and, and, and hold up these, I think they're Christian ideals and, and Jewish ideals of, um, of civility, of respect, of listening, of, of talking, a communication. Yeah, genuinely, genuinely treating one another as the image bearers that we know uh, one another to be. Alan, you and I have to leave it right there. Alan Crippen, Chief of Exhibits, Programs, and Public Engagement for the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. You can find it at faithandliberty.org until you can find it on Independence Mall in Philadelphia next May. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carmen. It's been a delight. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. Wow. Hour one down. Hour two yet to go. I, um, I'm having a good time this morning. I hope you are as well. Uh, let me just walk off this hour by asking this question. Um, what do you have noted on your family calendar? One of the things we do every year is put together a family calendar, give it to one another for Christmas. So it's got pictures in it from this year. Each person gets a, a month where they are highlighted. And then the calendar already has on it, you know, like everybody's birthdays and anniversaries so that we're all you know up to speed on those dates. I am going to really make an effort this year to seek to add either dates of baptism or rebirth days, rebirth days to the calendar, um, you know, and maybe have a conversation with my own family. Which which one of those really matters more? The date we were born, obviously significant, matters a lot, but so much more the date we were reborn. Do you, do you have that conversation in your family? Um, you know, we were all born, but not all of us have been reborn. And maybe we ought to start figuring out ways to intentionally celebrate our rebirth as Christians would give us a distinctive witness in the culture. It would give us a way to be people who are um, celebratory and excited about our adoption into the family of faith. Oh, adoption dates. Those are also celebrated on our family calendar. Little Coda came into our family through adoption, and we celebrate his day of adoption uh, every year as well. So think about adding some dates to your calendar, adoption dates, if you don't already have them, um, and then rebirth days. Hmm, as you're looking toward 2021. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Up next, I am looking forward to um, to conversations in the next hour with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In and then Josh and Christy Straub about 25 days of the Christmas story. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.